Happy versus Flourishing, episode three. Welcome to another edition of the podcast where we aim to give you ideas on how to improve your quality of life, both from a business perspective and from a personal perspective. We have quite a colourful character today. Steve Sims is the connector in Hollywood, around the world. He's done some quite amazing things and we're going to hear just just a, a tip of the iceberg and some of the many, many stories that he has So that's coming up very soon. If you do like the episode, please do share it with anyone who you think would really enjoy this and get some value from it. Why not subscribe, leave a review, let us know what you think. That really helps to to get the word out for more people to hear about the podcast. Right now it is time for this week's episode. Happy versus flourishing. Today, my guest is Steve Sims, and I got the feeling we're going to be in for quite a ride here. So, Steve, how you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks, fella. And your accent? Is your based? Is it in LA? Your based? No, I'm actually um, I'm based in what we call two miles outside of Precocious. I'm on the Malibu border uh, by the beach in an area called Topanga, which is in Los Angeles. But you don't have much of a, a local accent, do you? I don't, do I? No, um, no. I was uh, I was born I was born in Reading, um, lived right. in Basingstoke and Leytonstone, and then from a very early age, as we were just chatting about, just buggered off out of UK to find out where I did fit. And what was it initially that made you just sort of get up and go? Oh God. Um, Jesus, you've jumped into a, to a, a deep story. So let me give you a little bit of context first, which will probably help you with the uh, with the importance of this. Because as entrepreneurs, we've all got those pivotal moments. Mm. And I have often thought back to if this pivotal moment hadn't happened. So as a kid, uh, left school at the age of 15. My mother and father owned like a little bricklaying firm, um, which mm. you know only consisted of my granddad and my uncles and me and my cousins every now and then. Uh, every now and then we had big jobs, but most of the time it was just like extensions and porches and patios and that kind of shit. At the age of 15, I left school. I had one day uh, where I had a lay-in, woke up, and then the following day, dad kicked to bed at six o'clock and was like, you're up, you're working for me now. So all of a sudden, I was on the building sites. Now, I'd already done the summer holidays and the Christmas holidays, but now this was my life. I didn't have like the end of summer holiday to know that I would be going back to school and this would all be over. And there was one day that I was being a hod carrier. I was, I was carrying a, a load of bricks up a ladder. I get to the top of the scaffolding, and just off of the ladder next to me was my dad. Next to him was, was his brother, my uncle, his sons, my cousins, and then next to them, my granddad in his 80s. I literally had this hod of bricks in my head, and it was like an aha Hollywood moment I saw my entire family tree. And I thought, this is it. This, this is where it, my, my, my uncle was in his 40s. My uh, cousins were in their like 20s. You know, I'm in my, my uh, teens, like 16, 15, 15 and a half. This is it. This is absolutely everything. And my dad yelled at me to put the bricks down and get some more. Um, mm. Went down to the tea hut because it had been such a smack in the face of being able to see, see your future, see what you were going to become. Mm. And I went into the tea hut and it was typical, you know, British day. It was raining and, um, you know, the tea hut, everything stank because everyone's soaked and all trying to get warm. 
before they go back mm. out again. And I walked up to my granddad, all bunch of Irish people, and I was like, granddad, granddad. And I asked him a question which should have, should have got me a punch in the nose. I said to him, did you ever think you'd be doing this at your age? <laughs> now, he's in his 80s, no idea of a pension. And mm. he didn't even look at me. He just blew on his tea to kind of like cool it down before he could drink it. And he said, son, you don't quit today, you'll be me tomorrow. Mm. And I was literally like, whoa. And I, mm. I left uh, the tea hut as everyone went out as the bell rang. And I was like, dad, 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 you know, typical kind of like, you know, little bouncing bunny teenager. I was like, dad, dad, dad. I just went in, I saw granddad and granddad was there. And he told me that, and, he, and I spouted on him, but dad was like, what, what do you want? And I went, I've got to quit. And my dad, as I was saying that, my granddad walked behind me. My dad couldn't dramatize this more. You know, my dad looked at him. They looked back. And my dad turned around and looked at me and he went, we're light-handed, you leave Friday. I went, okay, great. And that was it. Now, they both understood that I needed to try and find another path. Hmm. But my mum, my <laughs> mum literally used to, and even today, she doesn't talk to me. Sadly, it's one of my losses in, in life. Even as recently as like 10 years ago when I did try to bridge the gap again, she would always turn around and it would always come up in every conversation, you think you're better than us. Wow. And even at that dining table that night when I told her I had quit, I mm. said, no, 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 I don't think I'm better than you. I think I'm better than this. Mm. I think I can be better. I don't know how or why or where or what. But I just think I can be, and she always twisted it to, and I think part of her, I think part of her was always scared that I would be able to achieve what she never could. And you get those people in your life, those people that go, oh, that could never happen. They yeah, don't want yeah. you to do it because they don't want you to validate that they're, in, that they're inadequate to do it. And I mm. think she had a bit of that self-doubt. Me and my dad were good until he died. Um, mm. But no, it started my whole journey off to make every kind of mistake and failure, if I could, to get to where I am today. Well, and where you are today is pretty amazing, some of the stuff that you've done. I mean, when I was reading through your bio, it's just, um, I mean, for the people listening who, in the preamble before the recording started, I gave you a little bit of background about Steve. But Steve, just tell us about some of the things you've done, and we'd be here all night if you would tell me all the sorts of amazing right, so, stories you've got. Um, I've got a couple married in the Vatican by the Pope. I closed down the Museum Academia de Galleria in Florence and set up a table of six at the feet of Michelangelo's David because a client wanted a really cool Italian dinner experience. Halfway through his meatballs, I had Andrea Bocelli come in and serenade him. I've worked with everyone from Richard Branson, Elon Musk, Sir Elton John. I've arranged uh, drum lessons with uh, Guns N' Roses, guitar lessons with ZZ Top. Uh, I had a client that wanted to meet the rock band Journey. So instead of doing that, I shoved him up on stage and he actually sang four tunes live on stage with the rock band. Um, I'm the uh, I'm the single person that sent more people down to the Titanic than anyone else, uh, actually down to the seabed to see it. Um, turned people into James Bond for a day, had people do walk-ons on famous movies. You know, I'm basically the Make-A-Wish Foundation for people with really big checkbooks. And how did this all come about? Settling. Um, you know, that, that was it. I wanted, there's the, classic, there's the classic line that you are the combination of the five people you hang around with. 
Mm. Well, all of my friends were broadcast British bikers. So mm. I was a broadcast British biker. Um, mm. So I needed to change my circle. If I could get around five rich people, then guess what the, by default I would become? You know, mm. it's stupid, but no one that knows me for longer than three seconds would deny that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm just as impactful. And so I would, I would try to find a way to talk to rich people. And mm. the goal was if I can get rich people to talk to me and communicate with me, I can find out why are you different? How are mm. you kind of like threaded differently? How are you kind of like wired differently? How do you move? talk, negotiate, handle, settle. And so, mm. as we already uh, spoke, I ended up with a, um, there's a whole long story, but I'll pass on this. Um, there is a book, you know, Shallow Plug, Bluefish in the Art of Making Things Happen, which goes through all of this. But mm. I made some bad decisions um, that turned out to be good ones in mm. what I wanted to do for a career. And as each one of them failed, it put me into another area. And funny enough, I thought I'd fallen on my ass and I ended up working for a nightclub in Wan Chai, Hong Kong called Neptunes. Mm. And mm. there was quite a few Neptunes nightclubs and they were very original. There was Neptunes mm. 1, Neptunes 2, Neptunes 3, and it went on. <laughs> so I was, I was bounced between the different Neptunes. But it actually, while I thought this was a low point in my life, it actually gave me the ability to watch social butterflies actually got me gave me a soapbox and a pedestal mm. to watch humanity i would see guys coming to the bar and we'd spoke about this before you could see the guys walking that were out to score that night you could see mm. the guys coming to you that were celebrating a business deal celebrating mm. a birthday looking for trouble you could identify it before they had got to you mm. and i would literally stand on the door and play a game in my head and you'd see a bunch of girls come towards the door, and in your head, you would go, oh, that's celebrating something. I'm going to mm. go with a new job. And I'd be like, mm. hello, ladies, how are you doing? What are you celebrating tonight? And they'd be like, oh, so-and-so's getting married. So I got it wrong, but I got the celebration bit right. And yeah. the more I played the game, the better I got. And then I started communicating. Because I knew where all the best clubs were, and this was in the, the 90s before Google, Mm. I knew where all the best clubs were. I could go up to the rich people in the club and go, hey, Johnny, I know you like a good night. We see you here a lot. What are you doing Thursday? And they'd be mm. like, oh, I don't know, Stephen. I'd be like, do you know there's a club just around the corner? They've got a special night on. Do you want me to see if I can get you in? They'd be like, oh, absolutely. And I learned from a very early age, if they mm. don't pay, they don't pay attention. Mm. So I would literally, this was in the 90s, bearing in mind, I would say, mm. let me make a phone call and see what I can do for you. I would mm. walk to the front door, stand there for like 20 minutes because I didn't even have a phone and mm. then walk back to him and go, okay, I've made it happen. All for you, you're on the guest list. Just turn up, tell them Sim sent you. By the way, it's a hundred bucks each. And mm. they would pay. And so mm. I tried getting in, into affluent people. I went from club promoting to then throwing my own parties. And the funny thing is, and this sounds really cool and harsh, but you know, who cares? I never spoke to poor people. Mm. Why? Because I was poor. I knew what being poor was like, and I couldn't afford shit. You know, we'd all played the grocery lotto where we would walk through the grocery store and know to the cent, to the penny, what was on our charge card so that we didn't get the eh -eh when you tried to run your charge card through. Right. You know, I was in awe of rich people because they never had that worry. 
Mm. And so I would float around with rich people. I went from club promoting, taking over like, you know, clubs on bad nights and throwing my own parties, then starting to throw them in mansions, then in yachts, then in penthouses, and it grew. And then people were like, oh, do you know anyone in Monaco? I'd be like, sure, I do. What do you need? Well, the Formula One Grand Prix, do you know anyone in any of the Formula One teams? I'd be like, what do you need? That sounds great. I think it's 50 grand and I'll make it happen. And mm. I just started throwing out numbers. Mm. And before, before I knew it, people were paying. And I realized that rich people paid to outsource that problem. Yeah. So people, you know, rich people could go to Ferrari and go, hey, I, I'd really like to be in your. But there was always that potential that they could get declined. Mm. Or that embarrassment that they may not look pretty enough, or they may not be the one. I didn't give a shit, you know. Mm. Lucky for all of these people watching the pod, are listening to the podcast. They can't see how devilishly good looking I am, but you know, I didn't care. So mm. I was able to massage, manipulate, if you want, negotiate, but more importantly, communicate mm. to get these people into where they wanted to be. Never wanted to launch the world's leading experiential concierge firm. Never, ever cared about that. Mm. I only ever wanted to play around rich people and find out how they, how they think, how they're, how they're wired. And that's what I ended up happening. I ended up launching a, a, a high-end concierge firm. We, at our peak, had 93 clients. Mm-hmm. Um, two-thirds of those were billionaires. So, you know, we were getting, well, I'm going to pop away for the weekend you know, my budget's $750,000. So we didn't need a lot of clients to mm. be making money. Um, and it grew from there. The requests got wilder, wackier. Hey, you know, there's a new Ferrari out. I want to be the first one to get it. Well, the son of mm. is the first one. Can you be the second? Yeah, I can. So, you know, it was all that kind of stuff that we mm. ended up doing. And along the way, because I knew how to communicate with affluent people, I ended up working for people like the Grammys, Kentucky Derby, New York Fashion Week, Chicago Art Fair, the Palm Beach Art Fair. And I went from New York, sorry, I went from uh, Asia back to England, realized that, you know, with the uh, um, the late hours and the, uh, the last call being 9.30 and stuff, this wasn't a place for me. I moved to Switzerland where I started working for a lot of the big Swiss banks. Mm-hmm. And then I moved over to America to start working for all the big events that I mentioned. And this year, actually not this year, tell a lie, 2019 was the last year that I ended up like an eight-year stint working for Sir Elton John. So it's been quite a, it's quite a journey. Quite a journey. Um, and we probably haven't even touched the surface yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, there's so many stories that you clearly have. It's, I, I don't know where to start. I mean, what, what would you say of those amazing experiences you've had? What is, is there one that stands out more than any other? There is, and it's probably, we already just mentioned it, actually, and it's probably not for the reason. And I want to make sure that anyone listening to this podcast, you know, both of them, I want to make sure that um, you're getting something out of it rather than listening to me can like spout on about how freaking awesome I am. Because mm. I want you to get the impression uh, or the direction, that this isn't hard. I just chose mm. to do it, and so many people run away from it. Mm. And my wife always says that I have the the uh, superpower of stupidity and ignorance. While mm. you're all there building up a business plan to work out if it can make money, I've tried it and discovered it can or can't. Mm. 
Um, mm. But I'll give you a story. Uh, and this mm. is for, you know, everyone else's growth. So yeah. I mentioned to you that I had a couple that wanted to get married in the Vatican by the Pope. Yeah. So I was stationed at the time for like seven months. There is no red tape that can compete with the Vatican. It's just unbelievable. You can't even make this shit up. Um, mm. And that's a whole different podcast on its own. But while I was in Rome, I got, a, I got a call or a WhatsApp from a client of mine who said that he was going down to Florence with his uh, fiance, and the mother-in-law and father-in-law was going to meet him there. Now, none of them were Italian. But he mm. said, I, I, I need to express how powerful I am and I need to really impress them. Um, I really need an amazing Italian dining experience. Mm. Now, it was that last word experience that stopped me just going on to like the Italian version of Open Table, you know, booking a really good restaurant and then, you know, phoning up and paying the chef to come out mm. and say hello to him. You know, anyone yeah. could do that. Yeah. So I've always, my little quote is go for stupid. You know, if mm. someone wants X, go for mm. A, B, C, E, D. Go for the most ridiculous uh, extremity of that request. And when you fail, you'll mm. still be miles ahead of the original request. Yeah. So this guy wanted a dining experience. So straight away, mm. I didn't want to be in a restaurant. I wanted to be on a penthouse. I wanted to be on a rooftop. I wanted something that someone went, oh, my God, I cannot believe you had dinner there. Mm. Now... The good thing is, over the years, because of the people I've got and the most amazing things, I've got some good connections now, so it's easier now. But I went through a million no's before mm. I've now started getting a thousand yeses, because that's the ratio. Yeah. And so I thought I wanted to do something that if you were in Paris and I showed you a picture of Paris, what would need to be in the picture for it to be easily uh, identifiable as Parisian? Obviously, the Eiffel Tower. Bingo. So um, I thought to myself, what has that capability in Florence? Now, there's mm. a lot of alfrescos. There's a lot of statues. But you could be in Austria. You could be in Poland. You could be in parts of England and yeah. see those kind of alfrescos and not recognize it instantly like you would the Buckingham Palace or the White House. It had to be, iconically, this could only be Florence. Now, mm. Michelangelo's David, the world's most famous statue, is yeah. housed in the Academia de Galleria. Mm. So I had some very powerful friends introduce me to them, saying that this was a man that needed something, pay attention. And I went in there and I said to him, I've been challenged with this request of a dining experience. I want to recreate that, and I want to do it at the feet of the world's most iconic statue. So I got them vested into the dream, mm. and they agreed it. Now, right. I also, because working with Elton John, I was trying to find someone, because museums, believe it or not, are deadly quiet. You, you can <laughs> fart in a, in a museum, and if no one else, you'll hear it for the next hour. You know. <laughs> so I needed something that would kind of like have some atmosphere. So we got a string quartet. And then I thought, again, go for stupid. Who's the most famous Italian speaker in the planet? Um, mm. I was amazed how many people said Pavarotti, you know. Mm. He's been dead for years, but I was amazed at how many idiots said Pavarotti. Mm. Um, so in the end, I managed to contact Andrea Bocelli, and he lives in Tuscany. And he was, mm. he was at home during that period. So for a donation mm. to his a charity, he agreed to pop down 
and do it for us. <laughs> so on the night, on the Wednesday night, the client turned up, knocked on the door, the doors opened up, there was a red carpet with rose petals on it that led down to a beautiful table. At the feet of the table, uh, sorry, at the feet of Michelangelo's David was the table and a string quartet. They looked around at a little bit of the artwork. They looked around. They got some photographs. They sat down. They had an amazing meal from an amazing, talented chef in Florence. And then halfway through the pasta, I said that I was going to bring in a local singer to serenade them during their pasta. I walked in arm on arm with Andrea Bocelli. Wow. Okay. Now, that's fantastic. You ain't going to be able to deny it. It's just beautiful. But here's the growth that makes that one of my favorite stories. Right. When I got the museum to say yes, mm. they then introduced me to the curator who would handle the logistics. Now, the mm. curator had been told to look after me. So mm. he wasn't going to, you know, do anything that he shouldn't do. Mm. But this guy didn't like me. This guy didn't want to work with me. This guy looked at me as just some kind of like kid that went around spending rich people's money, which is exactly what I am. Um, and he gave a bit of friction. I'd say, hey, and I won't mention his name, can we do this? And he'd be like, yeah, I, I, let, let me see, let me see. It was never, yes, Steve, it was, let me see. He always wanted to give me friction and made me want to hunt for it. So on the night... Now, we had the museum shut down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon till 1 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. At about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, they were set, in the evening, they were setting up the table. Andrea mm-hmm. was setting up uh, the piano with his son, and I was chatting away with Veronica Bocelli. I'm in the museum that I, Steve Sims, had shut down. And about 15 feet away from me, leaning on the wall, was the mm-hmm. curator. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know if it was uh, the narcissistic prick in me, but I wanted to give him a little slap just for giving me some friction. Mm -hmm. So I called him over to me. So he comes over to me, and he was impeccably dressed, um, Mm -hmm. as most of them are in Florence. And he stood there with his arms crossed, looking forward at the piano, and Andrea warbling away and just checking out his vocal cords. And I said to him, hey, this is quite impressive, isn't it? He was, uh, yes, yes, it is. I said, look at that table. That table's pretty amazing. Can you think of any better table in the planet for eating a fine Italian meal? He's like, no, that is, uh, that is beautiful. I apologize about the accent. And, um, I said, look at the, look at the statue. Can you, can you imagine being able to have a fine meal at the feet of greatness like that? This is just incredible, isn't it? He's like, it, it is. Yes, yes. And I said, and on top of that, we got Andrea Bocelli that's going to serenade you during your meatballs. Tell me that's not brilliant. He's like, no, it is. So I'm getting him to commit all the way along that mm. this is the most amazing experience. So this is where my bitch slap came in. And I know it's petty. You know, stick with me. I wanted him to apologize for being such a, a cretin to me. So I said, so tell me, how do you think I managed to pull it off? And I was expecting him to say, well, no one's as connected as you, Steve. No one knows how to negotiate as well as you. I was expecting a compliment that would have made him internally explode. Okay. Mm-hmm. Instead, he just looked at me and he went, uh, no one's ever asked. <laughs> and it killed me. I literally doubled up 
and he laughed. We actually have become real good friends. We've been knocking around, you know, like three and a half years. I think I texted him the other day regarding how COVID was in Florence. So straight away from that moment, you know, it all went down and, you know, we became, you know, good diehard friends forever. Mm. But it got me understanding and it got me thinking. And when I got back to the States, Mm. I've worked in studios, I've worked in the Pentagon, I've worked in Harvard. I started phoning some of these people that I've dealt with. And I went, hey, we haven't spoken for a few years. I just wanted to ask you a silly question, but you know we did this. And they would go, yeah, yeah, we had great fun. I said, yeah, how come I managed to do it? I'm just going back now, reanalyzing and and going over my stuff. How come you said yes? Do you know the amount of times they turned around and they went, well, no one had ever asked before. And I realized that we don't, as a society, ask for what we want. We ask for what's acceptable, plausible, not going to make us look stupid, you know, but we very rarely ask for what we truly want. And sadly, that's pushing us down a transactional society. So mm. I realized that my ignorance and my stupidity and my go for stupid was allowing me the privilege and pleasure of actually exceeding their expectations and dreams. And that's what I teach now in my, my coaching and in, and in the book it talks about this, but that's what I do now. Well, and, and so I know that you're you're a speaker, and you you know you speak in well, I, I presume many countries around the world. So, what kind of what is your message that you deliver on stage? It's all about the art of communication and ROE. Um, we're in a society now, especially now, um, and it's it's getting worse. We have they 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 say about freedom of speech. We don't have freedom of speech anymore. We're liable for anything that we say. And it can be misinterpreted, taken out of context, and we're getting scared to talk. Now, we're in a society that since 1999, with the birth of Friendster and MySpace, you know, I'm dating myself now, we suddenly learned the fine art of outsourcing our communication to these so-called social platforms. We've got society parts now that get upset if people don't respond immediately to them posting a picture of their new baby on Facebook. You know, why don't you phone your mates and tell them or text a picture, but instead you stick it on Facebook and then you're upset with them that they had a life and didn't see it on Facebook. The way we communicate today has got really, really bad over the last 10 years. And it's got worse because now we've got COVID that's come along. Now, COVID has stopped us being able to get out and hug people. And people are all kind of like, oh, I can't get out with my friend. Let's be blunt. You weren't getting out to start with. You were looking at every excuse. You were using social platforms to do this. We stopped uh, communicating with like the Me Too campaign because we were frightened of what we would say may come across as sexist. The girl looks hot. The girl looks beautiful. Girl's got a nice haircut. Can I say, oh, I like your hair? Or is she going to shout at me that, hey, you don't have the right to comment on my hair. I didn't have my hair done for you. I've heard people now debating whether or not they should hold open a door for a woman that steps through. Mm. You know, I have literally opened up a door uh, for a lady and she's walked through, stared at me and gone, I'm capable to open my own door. <laughs> and kind of confronted me on a few. I was just being nice, you know. So we're in a society now where we're getting that. 
We're pent up because we've been contained. Mm. And look what's happened. Now mm. we've got every possible reason. We've got Black Lives Matter. We've got politicians. We've got media. We've got all of the – we're on bubbling point. And we are scared to communicate. And when you're scared to communicate, you communicate badly. So people are not communicating for fear of it coming across wrong, which is doubling the problem. So I'm out there now showing people how we should communicate, how we should stop selling and start solving. And so my whole focus out there now, whether it be through, through my training, my, my coaching, my platforms, I'm out there to show people how to do it. And then focusing that – on your ROE. Now, a lot of people know what ROI is, your return on investment. I focus on an ROE, which is the return on energy. How much energy should I spend on this versus what energy I'm going to receive? Mm -hmm. And how many times have we done a business deal where it's been – I mentioned to you about the Vatican. You could not pay me 20 times what I earned for that mm -hmm. And have me at all interested in replicating it. Mm -hmm. It was painful. It hurt. The, almost the belittling that you get for trying to do something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it, it was so hot. The return on any, the return on investment bought a house up in the hills. So, mm -hmm. you know, the money was there. The mm -hmm. return on energy, I would literally go back to my hotel room. My family are all here in LA. And I would damn near sob at just how tired I was at the end of the day. Mm. You know, so the return on energy was not there. It was yeah. not worth it. And it was draining me. And so that's what I focus on. I focus on communication. I focus on support. I focus on the ROE. And I focus on getting you into a position to solve, not sell. And how do you talk about communication and freedom of speech and so on? How? How different do you find it in back here in the UK and the States and, and other countries? Um, you've got cultural differences. Uh, probably the most, uh, most uh, obvious ones are like the Middle East and Northeast Asia, uh, Russia, uh, former communist environments. You know, like China, for argument's sake, has no freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. Um, and we've seen that with the Hong Kong riots. Mm -hmm. Um, so culturally there is a difference, but the trouble is we need to be talking. We need to be communicating. Um, we don't want to communicate through media sound bites, mm -hmm. um, because that's wrong. It's just amplifying the problem. I think what we've got to do is get off the fence and stand with your opinion. For argument's sake, if I really don't like a level of music, mm -hmm. then I should be comfortable enough to say, do you know, I really don't like this. Mm -hmm. You know, without fear of getting, you know, like um, bastardized or ripped apart on social platforms. Did you hear Steve Sims? He says he doesn't like, you know, electronic dance music from Norway. You know, <laughs> you know, how dare he? You know, I don't want to be vilified and I don't want to be, um, under any possible fear of attack for having an opinion. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem we've got today. So many people are. So I work on clarity. Um, mm. There's one thing that people have said about me, and I hate it, and I'm glad you haven't brought it up. <laughs> I hate the word authentic. Okay. Hate it. 
And mm. in interviews, people go, oh, God, Steve, you know, you, you, you're so authentic. And, I, and I'll be like, whoa, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm absolutely not. When you sit there in a conversation, in a group, at a dinner, at an event, and you go, look at that guy, he's authentic. What you're doing is validating or noticing the, or, or accepting the fact that the rest of the planet is not. If we are actually looking at someone going, hey, he's authentic, then what's the rest of the world? And that's sad. It's like me walking up to you and going, hey, dude, you're breathing. Congratulations. It should be acceptable that the person in front of us is who they are, but the downside is they're not because they're frightened of being judged on any kind of platform that they can be. So what I focus on, and this is a key word that I love, transparency. There is a difference between being easy to understand and impossible to misunderstand. Mm. And if I can make my message and my conversation to you impossible to misunderstand, it's going to help you make the decision as to whether or not you want to join my side of the fence. Mm. I did an email the other day. I have a, um, it's free of charge, so there's no plugs here. I have a Facebook group called An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. And I have a, a, an email campaign from stevedsims.com where people can actually register for, you know, newsletters and stuff like that. Mm. I sent out an email about five days ago and the topic was on, the subject was please unsubscribe. Mm-hmm. Now my list had got up to, I think it was like about 18,000. And I put on there, please unsubscribe. Yeah. And I said, look, you're watching, you're following, you're not actioning. You know, I want to commit to those that commit. So if you're still floating around on the sidelines, not sure if this is for you, please unsubscribe and come back at a time when you can. We'll all be fine, but I want to work with those that want to play. Yeah. And the daft thing is, and I can give you the figures, email campaigns, if you've got a really successful tagline and you've got a really good piece of content, if you get up into the top teens, knocking on the 20% open rate, that's really good. Mm. You, you know that. Emails never get opened up by 100% of the people. 20% yeah. is a really good number for it to be opened up by. Do you yeah. know I was up on 37%? Wow. I had never been anywhere near that. But it started a conversation because I gave you a side of the fence to be on. And I gave you a couple of buttons. And it said, if you don't want to play, push this button and uh, we'll go and we're part as friends. Mm-hmm. I gave people the ability to move away. I tried. Now, I lost a lot of people. You know, mm-hmm. I think probably about a thousand people unsubscribed. Right. Okay. But don't you want that? Mm-hmm. I want the clarity that I'm dealing with someone that I can communicate with. If you're on the outskirts, and my message isn't working, what I can offer in, in my, my advice, my videos, my podcast, whatever, if it doesn't resonate with you, then move along. We're mm. going to be fine. But I think today people are trying to capture everybody. Now, remember, I told you my concierge firm had 93 people at its peak. I don't want to capture everybody I want to capture those that I can commit to. And Mm. I think people today are concerned about commitment. They are concerned about saying, hey, I don't agree with that. Mm. You know, there's there's, there's statements being going on uh, now um, around Black Lives Matter. 
And there are certain statements I hear and I go, hey, you got me. You know, I got your back on that. And there's other statements I hear and I go, well, no, that's wrong. I don't Mm. agree with that. And there's other statements that I hear and I go, can you explain that to me? Because I don't understand how that, you know, like the looting and the burning. It makes Mm. no sense to me that people are burning shops and stores in their neighborhood to make Mm. a point. It's like shooting yourself in the foot and hoping the other person gets hurt. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, yeah. What your your book, um, Blue Fishing: The Art of Making Things Happen, that came out what three years ago was it? Yeah, that was a shocker. Go on. Well, no, again, because of the people that I knew, and this is going to upset anyone that wants to write a book. I was literally at a party. I was introduced to someone. I had a couple of whiskeys, and a week later, they phoned me up and they said, "Hey, you should write a book." Um, right. So I had no proposal. I had no thought process behind it. And I said to him, I said, I'm really not sure. I said, if I write a book, I'm just going to spill it. I'm going to call it as I feel. I'm going to you know, say what I think. And they went, good. And we produced a book. And I really didn't think it was going to take off. In fact, here's the funny thing. We didn't even have a website for the book. You had to go directly to Amazon. You had to go and basically search for it. We did no marketing or media on the book. And they sent me, and this will make a giggle, they sent me two and a half grand, okay, by check. Now, they paid me very well to do the book. They obviously had more faith than I did. But they they had wired all the other monies, but they actually posted me a two and a half grand check. And I said, well, what's this for? And they said, oh, there's a Barnes & Noble, which is an American bookstore, just Mm. down the road from you. Uh, we've made a call with them, go down there on Saturday. They're going to supply you with a table, buy loads of champagne, sit at the table and sign copies on the Saturday afternoon of your book. And I said to him, now in fairness, I live in Los Angeles and I live in Hollywood. You can bump over celebrities in your local Starbucks. Every Mm -hmm. Saturday, there's usually someone in these stores signing it. But they, they are somebody. Maybe they were on The Bachelorette or maybe they were, you know, in a movie or maybe they were a singer. You know, mm. nobody knew who I was. Mm. You know, for 20 plus years, I was the most connected, unknown person. I would walk. There's been parties that I've been in where people have literally, because I always wear black, people have mm. literally given me their car keys or asked me, um, you know, about security issues where they just thought I've worked there, mm. you know? And so when I wrote the book, I thought no one's going to do it. So what I did was I took that two and a half grand and mm. I went down to my favorite little cocktail bar in Sunset Boulevard, great whiskeys. And I said, mm. well, I'm going to stick that behind the bar. I'm going to invite a bunch of my mates. When it runs out, you know, turn the lights on and we're pissed off. Mm. And so I phoned up a bunch of my mates. Now, of course, I got some pretty cool people. So they all came in and we all got drunk. And here's the funny thing. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen our book launch party? No. So they sent me a pile of books to actually sign at the, uh, the Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. I stuck them on the side of the bar so yeah. that I could show pictures. And I went, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, this is how I'm doing a book. I didn't think anyone would pay attention. Okay. Right. I also, and this sounds horrible to say, I didn't care. Right. I just wanted to get drunk with a bunch of my mates. So what I did was I stuck the pile of books that they gave me on the edge of the bar, invited a load of friends, and there was a friend of mine there called Cole Hatter who runs a massive great event in America called Thrive. Right. 
And he was getting some B-roll for another uh, sizzle reel that he was doing. And he said, look, do you, do you mind if my mate comes along and just videos me in the background? You know, because I had some influential, uh, influential friends there. He said, you know, just for my B-roll. And I went, look, as long as it doesn't get in the way, you know, and people don't get picked off, knock yourself out. Yeah. So he turned up that night and shot this video. What I had no idea, because they sent it to me the following day, mm. he shot the video on me doing a book launch in a whiskey bar. Right. And the funny thing is, it's on the front page of our website, stevedsims.com. And yeah. at the beginning of it, everyone's sober. Everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, it's such an honor to be here at Steve's book launch. You know, it, it's a, it wasn't a book launch. It was a pile of books and us all getting drunk. Mm-hmm. And everyone's sober and saying nice things. And as the video goes on, everyone's getting drunk and just starting to get abusive. And re- if you don't like foul language, don't watch this video. But it's the funniest book launch ever. And the funny thing is that took me off i think we sold like about 400 copies in the first month we put this video out and i said look here's me and a bunch of friends just getting drunk and i think we sold like eight thousand copies like in the next month and it just it's now been released in japan korea vietnam russia poland it's being sold all over the planet now so it's hysterical how it did take off but we didn't think it would Hmm. never thought it would resonate with people and I never thought I had anything to help people with. But then really, inadvertently, without realizing it, I was giving people permission that they didn't have to be a, a degree. They didn't have to be connected. They didn't have to be beautiful to be able to achieve what they wanted. They didn't have to be any of those things to have standards and not settle. So I've had a lot of people contact me saying, you know, your website, your videos, your book gave me permission to be me. And that's what hopefully is going to be on my gravestone. And what was your, what was your idea for the book? What did you hope to achieve? Well, the funny thing is they gave me a ghostwriter and uh, the ghostwriter started, they said, look, you know, where, where are you most days? And I said, well, in the afternoon, I'm usually in my garage just tinkering around on the motorbikes. I, I don't have a car, but I have a lot of motorbikes. And they said, oh, okay, three o'clock every afternoon for 45 minutes, uh, three, three, uh, three days a week, we're going to chat on the phone. You carry on tinkering on the bikes and we'll just have a chat. Mm. And I was like, yeah, okay then. So we chatted for about two, maybe three weeks. And then mm. they sent me three chapters of the book. Mm. And the chapters were like, you know, I'm Steve Sims. I'm brilliant. I'm connected. I'm wonderful. It was horrible. Mm. And my wife read it before I did. And she said, there's words in here that not only could you not spell, you couldn't even pronounce. She said, this is not you. Mm. So as I say, we had got paid very well to write mm. this book. The, you know, Simon Schuster really thought that this was going to go somewhere, which thankfully, mm. you know, they knew more than I did because it did. Um, mm. But living in Los Angeles, I thought we're going to have to give the money back. Now, to be mm. honest with you, the retainer that I had got, I'd already spent. I'd bought another couple of motorbikes, <laughs> went for a family trip to Japan, you know, mm. uh, put a deposit down, some stuff. I'd already spent the bloody money, but I thought I was going to have to give it back. So I flew to, a, uh, to New York from L.A., which mm. is like five hours. Yes, you know, it's an eight-hour trip once you consider, you know, driving to the airport, waiting, all that. Mm. And I walked into the office of Simon Schuster, and I said to her, I can't do this book. 
And she was like, why? And I said, because it's not me. You know, this whole book is about how wonderful I am, saying words that I would never speak about. Yeah, this isn't me. Mm. And she said, well, what's wrong with it? And I said, and the funny thing was, on the flight over to New York, they have these book stands in airports. And yeah. I said to Claire on the plane, I want someone to be able to read this book on this flight and then to become better. I want right. them to be able to utilize what I've done and create impact, do something different. Hmm. And so when I got to New York, I said, look, I want this to be an airplane read. I hmm. want someone to be able to, and funny, funny enough, we came up with this guy called Jerry. I said, I want Jerry to walk into JFK, buy the book, read it on the flight to LA, and then go into work the following day and do things different. That's what I want. And she turned around and she said, okay, then we don't need to get you a ghostwriter. We need to get you a translator. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? She said, we need to get everything out of your head and onto paper that someone else can understand. She said, and trust me, it's going to be simple and stupid now. Mm. So I went, okay. So they got me this girl who really got me quick. Mm. Um, no big words in the book. Um, and I said, when you read this book, it's going to aggravate you because you're going to go, shit, I used to do that. Mm. But then for some reason, you decided that it didn't work anymore. And when mm. you decided it didn't work, probably started working better because less people started doing it. One of the daft things I did about a month ago was I sent out 400 Christmas cards to my members of Sims Distillery. I sent them a Christmas card. Mm. Now, if you think about how much mail you get today, it's mm. getting less and less, isn't it? Because everyone's going for paperless billing. So what happens if you get a handwritten card? Mm. You open it up with all the excitement and all the triggers of when you were a little kid, you know, and you'd get a birthday card. You open it up. There's a Christmas card in July <laughs> from me saying, hey, I love you so much. I wanted to be the first one to give you a Christmas card this year. Merry Christmas, Steve. <laughs> and it did exactly what it's just doing to you. It made people smile. Mm. And here's the daft thing you'd be stunned at how many people actually went onto their social feeds mm. or started sharing it with their mates yeah. that they're part of a community that do things differently and look at this Christmas card. Yeah. From a materialistic and capitalistic um, and branding exercise, I probably ended up, we sent out 400 cards and we actually did a review on this the other day because we gave them a QR code where they could see a little video of me wishing them Merry Christmas. Mm -hmm. And um, we sent out 400 cards. They shared that barcode with their friends, mm -hmm. and it got just over 2,000 unique visitors to me wishing you Merry Christmas. Wow. From just sending someone a Christmas card. Fantastic. So it's stupid basic stuff, but um, it's worked. And so – you know, quite simply, I've started uh, uh, teaching it. I do the videos on the Facebook page I mentioned here, and I mm -hmm. do things differently. Um, and funny enough, I do things that we used to do back in the 80s and 90s and just for some intelligent reason decided they didn't work anymore. Well, I mean, you, you've, you've talked a few times about getting people to do things. Well, why do you think people have such a problem with failing or what they perceive as failing? Oh, you're good at this. This isn't your first podcast, is it? Um, the, the problem is that um, people aren't fighting to fail. They're fighting the people seeing them fail. Mm. 
you know, there are TV shows, there are there are YouTube channels which specialize in people like walking into doors, walking into walls, slipping on surfaces, you know, being mm. on the phone, walking into a lamppost. We like to look, we like to laugh at people making mistakes and falling over. Yeah. And there's a big difference between those people that fail and those people that care. Mm. And I'll name drop. I was doing an event for Elon Musk, and I took a group of literally billionaires. There were 30 billionaires, and we took them through SpaceX in Hawthorne. And I had two of them with me at the time while I'd gone and collected Elon and was walking him down to the main room where all the other attendees were. And as we were walking down there, uh, the two attendees that I was with, they were two of my high-end clients, so I'd done them a favor by getting them a few extra minutes and photo time with Elon. Mm. One of them was just happy to be close to Elon. The other one was jabbering around like a girl at a Justin Bieber concert. And mm. he was trying to strike up a conversation with Elon, who's not a very talkative fella. Mm. Okay. During the conversation, trying to get Elon to engage, mm. he brought up NASA. Now this was four or five years ago. And he mm. turned around and he said, it's, it must be hard when you know, NASA is publicly dissing your um, uh, energy into the space market. Mm. And at the time, NASA was publicly ridiculing Elon Musk. Yeah. And Elon didn't even break stride. He just said, they will always laugh at you before they applaud. Mm-hmm. And it, got, it was, again, one of those pivotal moments. Mm. People don't care. Or people shouldn't care about failing because failing is where all the education sits. You see, you don't get rich from being successful. Mm. You get rich from things going wrong and then you learning how to make them better. Because when you fail at something, you never go back to the original point. You Mm. learn what it is that went wrong, or you should, and then you get 10 steps ahead of where you originally were before the failure. You see, all the growth comes from your darkest moments. Every time something's gone, I've lost money. I've made loads of money. I've lost loads of money. But the beautiful thing is, I know how to make money. So when I learn, when I learn how I lost it, I can make sure I don't make those mistakes again. And then I don't get back to my original wealth. I succeed it. So I think today people are looking at failure in the wrong context failure Mm. is education on what not to do failure will only be finite and hurt when you stop getting up and my dad came up with the best statement again thick irish fella was walking down the streets once we were doing a gig in uh, london and i was i was like 14 years old i hadn't finished school at the time Mm. and he was a chain smoker he was the guy that would have a cigarette going and another one in his hand ready to light up from the other one so that he had continual cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, it was those days. Yeah. And we're walking down the street. He, you know, he wasn't holding my hand or anything like that. And all of a sudden, as we're walking, with the cigarette in his hand, he put his hand on my shoulder. Didn't look at me, just carried on walking. I'm looking up at him. And he took his cigarette out of his mouth and he went, Son, no one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. And puts his cigarette back in his mouth and carries on walking. I had stopped. And I was like, what the f- was that? You know, I thought he'd been taken over by a fortune cookie or something. 
it suddenly made me realize that we constantly fall down, mm. but it's our choice as whether or not we stay up there. The fight's not over when I go down, it's when I stop getting up. When mm. I fail, those are my best moments. I learn how to do things. Do you remember Elon Musk said that one of the most expensive parts of a rocket was the fuel cells? Mm-hmm. And so if he could find a way of landing those back on Earth and reusing them, yeah. he cut down on that. Do you remember all of these conversations? Mm-hmm. Do you remember seeing how many times that rocket would land on that floating pad, fall over, and explode? Do you remember seeing those? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When was the last time you saw one fall over and explode? Don't remember. Bingo. Why? Because yeah. they don't. Mm. You know, they land now. Now, he's not going to be able to have calculated how to make it land perfectly if originally it didn't. Now, yeah. he's had rockets go up there. He's had rockets come. You Google it. You can find it. They mm. land perfectly. And now it doesn't make the news real anymore because mm. he's succeeded from it. Elon Musk is a perfect example of a guy that does not give a flying shh what you think mm. of him failing. He cares about what it taught him to proceed forward. Mm. And I think I, I, this whole failing thing and, you know, the, the, it's, it's, as you said, it seems to be getting worse and I guess it's been being magnified by social media and that's why people are being even more scared to try things. 100%. What, what are your thoughts on, we touched upon, we were talking about quality of life before the recording started and I guess similar to the whole failing thing, people... It seems to be more and more people are just content just to have a day at work, go home, stick themselves in front of a TV for a few hours and not have the kind of amazing experiences that, you know, you've been talking about during this episode. Well, they're not us, are they? Hmm. You know, it, there's, there's entrepreneurs and then there's entrepreneurs. And those entrepreneurs, as soon as they get a scraper scar screwed over or laughed at, they're like, oh, I don't like this game. I'm off. Mm. You see, let's be honest. An entrepreneur is a guy that leaves a safe, secure 40-hour-a-week job where they get paid every Friday to work 100 hours and not make any money. Mm. You know, entrepreneurs are those people that go, hey, there's got to be something different for me. It's a different mindset. Me and you are different. Actually, we're not that much different because we had quite a few stories beforehand. But I'm amazed that I can speak to an entrepreneur all over the planet and there's similarities. There's Mm. a DNA in us that says, no, there's got to be another way. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something different. You can't sadly learn that. You can get better at it. And that's where the failings give you that education. But... Mm. An entrepreneur and a entrepreneur, they don't share the same, um, they don't share the same, uh, DNA. They absolutely mm. do not. So when you're speaking, well, you're, yeah, when you're speaking from the stage and you're sort of coaching and so on, who is your, are you mainly working with entrepreneurs and is that who you're trying to reach? Do you know, it's weird. Um, <laughs> I didn't put any effort into speaking gigs. Um, it just happened. Like last year, I think I had 32. Um, mm. I was quite well booked up for this year. That's now got pushed into there. And I am actually coming to UK, uh, I think next summer. So mm. I'll probably end up doing some, some gigs over there. Mm. Um, I speak to people that don't, don't want to settle and need 
to refine their message and communication. So for that reason, because of my past in high-end luxury, I always thought I would be doing speaking gigs in that in that world. And I did. I worked for Tiffany. I worked for Campbell Nicholson. I worked for Ferrari. I worked for Piaget, major luxury brands. Mm. And then I got picked up by realtors and mortgage company and car salespeople and Mm. frontline sales assistants for insurance companies. Mm. All of a sudden, anyone that needs to refine how they communicate and to amplify the message of solving, not selling, I've started working with those. So I've been speaking a lot with sales communities, management communities, middle management, and also entrepreneurs on how to identify their elf business, their easy, lucrative fund. That's from Joe Polish. I'm Mm -hmm. focusing on a wide spectrum of people that quite simply shouldn't be doing what they're doing today. They -hmm. should be doing it differently. Well, Steve, we're, we're coming towards the hour mark, and I want to be respectful of your time. But so before, before well, how, how will people, if they want to find out more about you, maybe get in touch, where, where would they go to? Well, they can go over to Facebook. As I say, I've got the free group, uh, An Entrepreneur's Advantage with Steve Sims. There's only one M in Sims. Um, mm-hmm. if, they, if they want to commit and join my, my live feeds with me, and you know, I have guests like Jim Quick and you know, some very famous people, I have simsdistillery.com, or you can just jump on a stevedsims.com, sign up for the newsletter, and just have me badgering you with my stupid videos and rants and uh, opinions. <laughs> and before we finish, is there a book that you, I mean, apart from your own book, is there a book that you would recommend to people? Yeah, um, actually, uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so I'll give you two that, that have really kind of like, you know, kicked me well. The beautiful thing about COVID was I got to read more because I wasn't flying so much. So um, what I did was all the flights that I had that were cancelled, I re-tagged those as book time. Um, so I got to read a lot of books. Two books I really loved. One that I've had forever and uh, never got around to reading was Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Brilliant book on how the media actually works and how you can get media. But the other one I really fell in love with was Hooked by Nair Eyal. We actually had him on a private AMA at my Sims Distillery group. Nair Eyal, E-Y-A-L. The book's called Hooked, and it's how companies get you to form triggers and habits with their products and communities. And probably one of the most obvious two out there are Nike and Apple how you revere these two brands as uh, communities. He was a coder. Wasn't he a coder for some of those companies? Yes, he was. He actually yeah. is. He was actually involved with the community establishment and branding for most of those major organizations. Mm-hmm. He, he's a silicon. You know, he's actually in Singapore now. Um, but yeah, no, he's a, uh, and he just done another book, which he sent me and we're going to have him back on our AMAs. We do these um, live AMAs twice a month with these big experts. That his his follow up book I just read that recently it's excellent. I can't it, is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. I he sent it to me and uh, we were going to have him back on. Well, we are going to have him back on, but um, I haven't got around to reading it yet because I haven't finished. Um, trust me, I'm lying. I'm on like about the, the last I don't know fifteen percent of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. The the, the follow up, mate. It's, it's bugging me now. But yeah, great book, really good book. I also, I just got BJ Fogg sent me um, a really cool book, uh, his latest book as well, on uh, on habits. Um, right. So BJ Fogg and um, Nair Eyal, 
uh, very close within the mental trigger. If you're looking to build a brand, um, you want to look at building a community and you want to look at building a following. Uh, those are more important than a brand. A brand is what people say about you when you've left the room. It's yeah. very hard for you to instigate a brand. So mm. you should instigate a message and a community and a following. Mm. And, and finally, Steve, is there a quotation that you, you like? It was my dad. Uh, I always go back to that one. No one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. Every time something goes wrong, and things go wrong for me a lot, um, and I welcome them. Uh, if we chat this time next year and I haven't failed, it means I haven't tried and I don't want to be that person. So I'm constantly trying. And every time shit happens, I go, oh, God, well, I'm in the water. Do I stay here or do I stand up? You know, and it sounds silly, but I actually speak that line to me. And I think, think of my dad when he gave it to me. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time and your yeah, your superb stories. It's been a it's been a pleasure for the last hour. So thank you. I look forward to seeing you in the UK next year. Lovely, definitely. I, I hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> next week is episode four with Massimo Pierglucci, who's a professor in a university in New York. He has a PhD in genetics, another one in evolutionary biology, and another one in philosophy. He's quite a character. We've had, we have a really good conversation about how you can improve aspects of your life to so that you enjoy life more. And we go into a number of different areas around that. So that's next week with Massimo Pierglucci. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Please, again, share it with anyone who you think would really find some of these great stories entertaining and maybe would also get some value from them and leave a review, subscribe, and I hope you have a great week.